Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Peter. This is a continuation of last week's Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13 with questions that are asked of God. And the question we started looking at last week is, is this the end of the world and what are the signs of your coming? Well, I want to tell you one of the signs that will happen as the end of the world comes is a mixed bag. There'll be very exciting times happening. There will be revivals like you can't believe. We're starting to smell an outbreak of that at some universities around the Midwest. Asbury, some of you have heard, in the last two weeks seemingly has broken out in revival. Also, Cedarville University has broken out in revival to some degree. And I pray that that tribe will increase and we will see it spread from college university to local churches to local homes. And that God would do great things. At the same time that you see that in the end days, we also see Satan working as hard as he possibly can work at the same time. So this morning as we get started, we're going to wrap up this question series Is this the end of the world, and what are the signs of your coming? Would you pray with me just for a moment? Dear Heavenly Father, I don't know when I wanted to do a better job than I want to do today. A a job, Lord, not just of emotional or, 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 Father, even inspiration, but, Lord, information inspired from your word that causes us to live closer and to be more bold about sharing Jesus Christ in these last days that we live in. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us ears to hear in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, amen. So let me ask you, uh, have you ever seen one of these things that you see on the screen right now? The guy coming out with the sandwich board, the end of the world is near or it is now or something like that. When you see that typically in a movie, they're depicting a fundamentalist right-wing Christian that's going to be portrayed and depicted as being a fanatic and they'll somehow have a mocking scene in the movie to make fun of him. But what's interesting about that is that a couple of weeks ago, our entire press in the United States, every newspaper that I know of in the, in the United States, took time for this slide coming up, and that is this fella named Punxsutawney Phil. Uh, oh, I don't know. We, we must have lost it. That's not him. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, there, I had a picture there, and they must have gotten it out of order. But we had this rat, this rodent, predict our future. And everyone in America was wanting to see. Is that him? Yeah, there's my mother-in-law. That, that, that is Punxsutawney Phil right there. And everyone wanted to predict, is that when it's going to take place? So you know how Groundhog Day works, right? It wasn't just Bill Murray that had that thing down pat. Every year for the last 137 years, since 1886, on February the 2nd, this rodent comes up out of the hole to predict its future. And here's how it works. If he sees his shadow, what happens? A bad weather. And if he doesn't see his shadow, then we're going to have an early spring and things are going to be better. So from 1886 until now, he has seen his shadow 105 times. He has seen a pretty day 20 times during that period of time. And the rest, there's not a historical record of what happened. But according to one almanac called Storm Facts Almanac, Punxsutawney Phil has been accurate. Okay, you ready for this? It's only either good weather or bad weather. You get a 50-50 shot at this, right? He has been correct only 39% of the time. 
That's pretty bad. In fact, that's abysmal that he would be that low with that kind of scoring to get that kind of press. But that's what happens every time you let a rat predict your future. Things just don't go the way you want them to. Well, it's one thing to predict the end of winter. We can forgive him. But ladies and gentlemen, it's entirely another thing to predict the end of the world. It's entirely a more serious thing to say this is when the end is going to come. Uh, I want you to notice on the screen, I love this. I saw another cartoon. The guy's guessing about when the end of the world's going to be, and he gets it wrong. The end is near, 1980, Hal Lindsey. The end of the world is, the end is near, 1988, Edgar Wisnott. The end is near, 1999 and 2000, and Harold Camping and all the guys that says the end is, is near very quickly. And there have been a lot of folks that have had to make an apology for saying the end is near because they've been wrong. But on the other hand, throughout history, throughout Christian history, there have been some credible Christians, men whose names that you know, theologians, scholars, who have set a date and predicted the coming of the Lord and the end of the world. Just for an example, I'll throw a few names up on the screen for you right now. There was a guy by the name of Ignatius in 110 A.D., Please note that was only 20 years after John finished the book of Revelation. In 110 A.D., he said, the last days are upon us. And then there was a gentleman by the name of Hippolytus in 250 A.D. Hippolytus of Rome wrote that Christ was sure to return by the year 500 A.D. The great reformer Martin Luther in the 1500s said, and I quote, We have reached the time of the white horse of the apocalypse. The world will not last any longer than another hundred years. And then none less than Christopher Columbus. You say, Frank, Christopher Columbus was a sailor. In 1492, he sailed the ocean blue. He was not a theologian. But did you know that Christopher Columbus was also a Bible student, and in particular, a student of Bible prophecy? He wrote a book, in fact, called The, the Book of Prophecies. And Christopher Columbus said in the year 1656, that the world would end, I'm sorry, by the year 1656. And he said, and I'm quoting, he said, there is no doubt that the world must end in 155 years. So we know that predicting the end of the world has become a favorite pastime for a lot of students that study eschatology and end time things for a long time. Last Sunday, if you were here, I told you that a most recent survey shows that more than one half of all Americans, not just evangelical Christians, but all Americans of all religious backgrounds and secular backgrounds believe that we're living in the last days. And in this uh, time that we're talking together, as we finish this part of the series up, and in a couple weeks, I will, with Lord helping me, I'm going to continue this. But uh, I'm not going to predict when Jesus is coming back. I value my life too much. The Bible says they get a stone, a false prophet, and there are a few of you that would like to do that. The truth is, no man knows the day or the hour, so I'm not going to do that. But we are going to talk a lot today about prophecy. In fact, the... The entire focus of what I will do in days ahead is based on a word called biblical eschatology. Just turn to your neighbor and say eschatology, would you? Eschatology. Isn't that a weird word? Dr. Smith, it sounds like something you go see a doctor for, you know, that you need to, you need to see an eschatologist to make sure everything is okay. 
But the word eschatology comes from the root word of end times and end things. And so the study of eschatology is the study of what's going to happen. And there's a whole lot of Christians that think we should not be studying eschatology. And there are names that you know very well, names of very prominent, great, brilliant people. They, they, they use the position, they say, why study prophecy? Uh, it's really not that worthwhile. And for a number of reasons, we feel that it's just too uncertain. There's, there's too many different interpretations of it. Just between you and me, can you show me one area of theology that Christians don't have interpretations over? How you get the Holy Spirit, when you get the Holy Spirit. When does salvation happen? Are you saved? Are you being saved? Or will you be saved? And the answer to all three of those is yes, yes, and yes. And lots of questions that can be asked. And they say, yeah, but there's so many people that just seem to sensationalize prophecy. And there's a bunch of alarmists out there. And I get that. There are a bunch of alarmists that are out there. And as a result of that, the blowback that comes from the sensationalism and seeing books written with big red bloody letters, the end is near, the end is here, we tend to shy away from it. And we almost take the Doris Day approach to theology. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. And the truth is, God does want us to see the future. I know I should be a singer, glory to God. But, but, but I, I want to share with you today four words that will dispel the notion that we should not be looking at Bible prophecy. And the words are prediction, concentration, deception, and motivation. And I've written them on the back of your worship guide. You don't even have to fill them in. And I want to show you the principles of these words regarding end times. Not only have we used last week Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13, and you can review those notes. But another scripture that's very pertinent to this topic is 2 Peter chapters 1 through 3. And so that's what I want us to put our focus on for a few moments this morning. If you'll turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter, and we'll look at it in just a moment. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. So I want to begin with the first word, prediction. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Now it's interesting that this is toward the end of Peter's life. Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down on a cross because he told his crew that was crucifying him that he was not worthy to die in the same manner that Jesus Christ died. He's toward the end of his life, and he is writing to us about the end of days that would take place. And in Peter's last days, his focus is just on last days. Notice in verse 2 what it says. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come, and then here's the phrase, in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Has anyone ever thrown that one at you? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so he talks about the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. He's talking about the coming of Christ. And understanding his statement is that the coming of Christ and the last days was something that was predicted in the Bible. 
A conservative estimate from seminaries is that 25% of your Bible is, has to do with prophecy. The actual number is 27%. And to ignore that 27%, to be someone that has an IQ over three and a brilliant theologian, to say it is not important to discuss 27% of the Bible, God help your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. That would be like sending a young man to medical school and tell him to leave out 27% of the training. You don't need that 27%. I will go look for a doctor that got the whole 100% of training. Is there an amen in the house? And with the Bible, it's the entire Bible. We believe the Bible is the inspired word of God from Genesis 1-1 to the end of the last chapter in Revelation. And it's given to us that we can see not only how to live, but what our hope is. Do you remember last week Paul called it our blessed hope of what we have? In fact, I want you to know that prophecy is God's calling card. And he uses it to authenticate himself, to prove himself to others. There's an Old Testament scripture, and I know I don't have a lot of verses written down, but I was busy this week. Would you just write the reference? Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10 say this. This is God speaking. It says, for I am God, I alone. I am God, and there is no one else like me. Only I can tell you what is going to happen even before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. And we find in those 66 books that the Bible is full of predictions. And specifically, the last days are predicted. It was the question that the disciples had for Jesus last week. Notice on the screen again in Matthew 24 and verse 3. Tell us, Lord, when will these things be? What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, this phrase that Peter mentions here in verse 3, last days, appears five times in the New Testament. It appears in the book of Acts. Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts. It appears in 2 Timothy. That was written by Paul. One appearance of it is in the book of James. And, of course, James wrote that. And then once the term last days is used in the book of Hebrews, and we're not sure who wrote that. But we have four or five separate authors in the New Testament using the term these last days. What's interesting to me is that three of the four people that, that were involved in that were also involved in the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ that we'll talk about in just a moment. In the Old Testament, it's referred to as the, old, as the last days under several different names. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah used the term latter days. Daniel, if you were with us when we studied Daniel, he really has lots of different terms for the last days. He called it the end times. He called it the appointed time. He called it the time of the end. And then he also referred to it as the end of days. So the question for us today is, is the end near? Are we in the last days? Brothers and sisters, yes, we are. But we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. So buckle up, Sonny Buck. <laughs> we are definitely in the last days. The last days began with Jesus Christ's ministry on this earth. How do I know that for sure? Because of the writing of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, that was written, incidentally, 2,000 years ago. And in verse 1, it says, God who at various times and in different manners spoke to us through the prophets, 
has in these last days spoken to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the writer to the Hebrews 2,000 years ago acknowledged that he was living while he was writing in the last days. And then on the day of, the Pente- the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were in the upper room and, and freaked out everybody in Jerusalem, uh, they thought these disciples were drunk. And notice what it says in Acts 2, verse 15. Peter stands up and says, hey, these guys are not deacons. They're not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the what? Last days. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Yes, we're living in the last days, but so was Ignatius. So was Hippolytus, so was Martin Luther, and so was Christopher Columbus. Uh, Maybe this will help. Last weekend, we had a great day here at Genoa, but most of you spent your evening watching a record-setting viewing of a ball game called the Super Bowl. I understand more people watch that Super Bowl than have watched Super Bowls in a long, long time. And uh, in that particular game... uh, And it didn't play out this way. The game didn't go into overtime. But let's say, gentlemen, that it's the fourth quarter of the game. And the score is really tight, which it was. And you're at your friends watching the game. And your wife says to you, hey, bucko, we have to leave. This thing has gone longer. That that halftime show that you recorded and played over three times has caused us to go even longer in this fourth quarter. We need to go home. And then you say, as a red-blooded American guy, honey, we're in the last quarter. And she says, how long is the last quarter? It's only 15 minutes. And you know that he's lying like a dog. Because even though technically it is only 15 minutes, that 15 minutes with timeouts, with penalties, with everything that can take place, and then you can go in overtime. Did you know that? And in overtime, you don't dare tell me it's time to leave during overtime of a Super Bowl. And that game, can it's only 60 minutes long. And yet, do you know that on TV they go almost three hours? Three hours. But here's what I want you to know. The longest football game ever recorded was Christmas Day, 1991, 82 minutes and 30 seconds, nonstop play. Here's the thing that I want you to know. At the end of that fourth quarter, however long it takes, there are no other quarters. There's not a fifth quarter. At the end of the prophecy that Jesus gives us, There's not going to be another message. It says in these last days, this is the fourth quarter. This is it. God has sent his son, Jesus, to speak to us. There will not be a Mormon named Joseph Smith coming with a set of tablets to give you anything new. You don't take the additional writings of Mary Ellen White and say that this is also addition to what God has given in the last days. The book is all you need. The last days, the fourth quarter, is all that the Lord has given us to go by. And, and, and then also, you remember we talked about the Lord gives us signs of what's going to happen. We, we saw something about that. And I explained to you the word for those signs that the end is getting near is birth pains. And, and the signs of a woman that, that the pain starts and then it becomes more intense and then it becomes more frequent. And then it's time for that baby to be born. 
And as we march into the future, I think we would all agree that we're seeing those birth pangs all over the world, all over the globe, things coming together. And I don't think we're in the tribulation period yet, but I think we're so close you can punch it with the end of your finger, that we're that close to the very end. Paul said this to the Thessalonians. He said, of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write you. In other words, you'll be able to tell what the time is, what the season is. So prediction is the first word. It's okay to look and to study the word of God and see when Jesus Christ is coming back. And you'll be reminded of some of the great old hymns of the faith. This earth is not my home. This, this is not our final destination, your retirement place. It's a terrible word to use, retirement. But I don't want to retire on this earth. I want to retire on the streets of gold where there is no more sickness and no more death and no more pain. Where the things are, that's our retirement. This retirement here is refirement. You know, we, have, we, we get to live on this earth as long as the Lord wants us to live. But our retirement is in heaven. And some of you, I just shared this at a memorial service last week, are sending your retirement on ahead of you. Jesus said it this way, do not put up your treasures on earth where thieves and and rust come in and steal and destroy, but lay up treasures in heaven. That future retirement, that's that's not your 401k, that's your million K, if you can say something like that. All right, so prediction is the first word. The second word on the back that I wrote down for you is the word concentration. And that concentration is important so that you don't go off in a thousand different religions, a thousand different philosophies, but you concentrate and centralize on something. Go back to chapter 1, if you will, of 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I started you in chapter 3, but look at chapter 1. And the 16th verse of 2 Peter chapter 1, and see if you can figure out what event Peter's talking about. Are you there? Say amen. It says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Do you remember what incident that he was talking about when he said, we were eyewitnesses of that? It's the transfiguration. Do you remember when Jesus took three disciples? What were their names? No, it wasn't Ringo. (laughs) It was Peter, James, and John. And he took them on a mountain, and he transfigured himself before them. And there were two other biblical individuals that appeared with them, and that was Moses and Elijah. Do you remember that? You wonder why that I told you the four books they talk about the last day included Peter and James, and John wrote the book of Revelation. Why would they be so passionate about the end days and Jesus coming back? Because they had already been on the mountaintop. 
they'd had a glimpse of what glory is going to be like. And incidentally, the other individual, the Apostle Paul, though he talked about the last days, he wasn't on the mountain. But do you remember his experience on a Damascus road? He was minding his own business, just trying to kill a few Christians. And the noise comes out of heaven. He's blinded by light. God got a hold of his heart. That will get your attention. And you go back home and say, really, I'm not making this up. The Lord is coming back again. And that's the passion that these guys were writing about. Peter was so overtaken. What Peter said on Mount Church, that place, shows to you that Peter had never been a pastor and built a church. Because he said, Lord, this is such a neat thing. Let's build three huts. You only build one thing at a time. One thing at a time is plenty. Let's build three tabernacles here. And the voice comes from heaven. God says to Peter, he says, this is my beloved son, Peter. You listen to what he has to say. It's so important. And the transfiguration is what they refer to in the film industry as a trailer. It's a preview of the movie to get you excited about things to come. And Peter and James and John got a preview of the event that's described in Revelation chapter 19, the glorious coming of Jesus Christ back to this earth. And that's the point. The point is the focus of biblical prophecy. The focus on the last days, it's not the rapture. It is not the tribulation. It is not the European Union. It is not Gog and Magog or the mark of the beast. The focus of eschatology is the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus is all on him. And every prophetic subject that deals with the last days focuses or concentrates on Jesus Christ. So, for example... In the Old Testament, there's much about Israel in prophecy. Why is that? Because Israel is the, the, the genetic conduit that gave us Jesus Christ, born of the Jews. There's much about the rapture. Why? Because the rapture is what takes us physically into the presence of Jesus Christ. There's much about the tribulation. Why, why is that so? Because it's that season that will prepare the world for judgment by Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ at the end of that. There's much about the millennial kingdom written in Revelation chapter 19. Why is that? Because it describes the literal kingdom of Christ on this earth. It's all about Christ. You may remember that when Jesus was having a conversation with the religious leaders of his day, he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. He's saying, basically, I want you to know that every prophet, every prophecy refers to me. And today, I want us to know that every book in that Bible, all 66 books in that Bible, refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole Bible right there. One person and two events. Two events, the first coming and we're waiting for the second coming. The first coming, he provided redemption. The second coming, he is not coming back as a baby in a dirty diaper in Bethlehem's major. He's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords, and he will rule on this earth. And there will be no voting on what's going to take place in those days. And, and you're going to find the prophecies of the future center around either the predictions of his first coming or his second coming to rule. A great example of that is in Luke's gospel, chapter 24. This is after 
the death of Jesus. Jesus had been resurrected from the grave. You'll remember he was on the Emmaus walk, the original Emmaus walk. He's walking by, and there's two disciples that are there that come up to them. And they're so bummed out that Jesus had died. They, they think it's totally hopeless. It's over now. And Jesus says this to them. Notice on the screen. <laughs> he said, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. That's like he went, duh. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Ought not the Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? And then it says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did he say? I wish we could have been there to hear what he expounded to them. Maybe he started in Genesis chapter 3 explaining about the serpent and the seed of woman who would crush the head of that serpent. I'm sure he must have discussed the skins that the Lord provided as an atonement for their sin. I'm betting he skimmed by Genesis chapter 22 where Isaac was almost sacrificed at the exact same mountain that Jesus was sacrificed, sacrificed on years later. He probably went to Exodus chapter 12 and mentioned to them the atonement, the blood covering over the door that allowed people to be saved. He probably talked about the Levitical sacrifices and how he fulfilled them in the tabernacle structure and how he fulfilled that. He probably stopped at Leviticus 16 and discussed with them the scapegoat and saying, I'm that scapegoat that allows you to live. No doubt he talked about Psalm 22, which is a beautiful depiction of Calvary. He no doubt mentioned Isaiah chapter 53, the counselor, the wise government on his shoulders. He may have even looked at Daniel chapter 7, the son of man prophecy, and Daniel chapter 9. It's amazing how you could see him in Isaiah chapter 53. It just blossoms when you look at it. You put Jesus in Psalm 22, and then Psalm 22 makes all the sense in the world. And so just around like the planets revolve around the sun in our solar system, all of the Bible revolves around Jesus Christ. All of our study, all of our hope, everything that we look at revolves around Jesus Christ. So we do have prediction. We do have concentration. The concentration of the Word of God is Jesus Christ. Then the third word that I want you to see in the midst of all that good is this thing called deception. In the midst of good, that is going on. You have to bring this up because it's probably predicted as much as anything regarding the end times. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, repeated it frequently that in the, da the, the, days, the last days that, that there, there would be false messiahs and false Christs and false teachings, and much deception. And he said this, and many people will be deceived. Now, the truth of the matter is we know there's always been that. There's always been that part of God's truth that has been twisted, and there are deceivers. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, it talks about that people will twist the truth to their own destruction. But you can expect an uptick in activity as we get closer to the last days. It would not be unusual for you to hear all sorts of things for people to tell you that what the Bible says really is not what the Bible means to say. I would describe today is this, we have this cultural syncretism, much like what happened in the Old Testament when they started bringing idols into God's worship house. Can you believe that? 
They were bringing pagan idols into the temple of God and saying, oh, we're warm. God, you're good, but we want to add to it. We want to change it just a little bit. They were basically bringing all these different gods and many different options. And, and yes, that's our God, Yahweh, but he's on par with all the other gods and goddesses that other people worship. And we want to be inclusive, and we want everyone to feel comfortable in church. And so often today, our culture speaks much of tolerance. I read about every week about some precious school teacher somewhere in this country being fired and terminated because they refuse to tell a little boy that he's a little boy. Uh, the, the, the atrocities that are happening in our nation right now and slipping into the church, I'm afraid, is beginning to happen. We're told to tolerate everyone's religious ideas or non-religious ideas. The favorite bumper sticker being sold today in America is a little bumper sticker with one word that says coexist. You've seen that probably many times on cars and vehicles. The only evil that they see in the midst of all that one of this world we live in is us as Christians. That message is really to those that claim that Christ is the only way, that we are the real enemy. And the time is coming very soon, and it's already happened in places where coaches and teachers have tried to pray, and students have tried to lead prayer meetings. They've been terminated. They've been fired. They've been ostracized. They've been shut out. And I'm telling you, my prediction is I don't see that getting any better for anyone in this room. In the days ahead, you need to know whom I have believed in and be persuaded that not only he will keep that which you've committed unto him against that day, but he will give you the courage to stand for that in this day, that we could be what God wants us to be. Amen. And, and so we live in this world where deception is going to have two opposite sources. It's going to come from two places. Number one, deception is happening inside the church right now. And number two, outside of the church. If you hear some religious leader saying something to you that doesn't line up with the word of God, do not accept what that person says, whether it's me or anyone else. Be like the brave Bereans in the book of Acts and search the scripture to see if such things are true. Don't buy new lies, hook, line, and sinker. The Anglican church declaring there is no hell. I wish there were no hell. I've, I never, I've always thought if someone knew what it really meant when they tell someone else to go to hell, you have no idea of the suffering, of the separation, of the sin cost that got a person there to begin with. Say, I pray that you go to heaven, but not the other. And there are false prophets inside the church. Look at chapter 2 just for a moment. Verse 1. Peter's saying this. He said, but there were also false prophets among the people. Even as there will be false teachers among you who secretly bring in destructive heresies. I think of Carlton Pearson, uh, an African-American pastor who's one of the most wonderful preachers I've ever heard. And in 1990s decided that a third of the teaching of the New Testament shouldn't be in there and just begin to ignore it. He says, bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And the second chapter of chapter 2 is totally devoted to that theme, apostates in the church. An apostate will defect from the truth. They'll be in the church. They'll be the religious world in the last days. 
and there will be a, a falling away from historic Christianity the closer we get to the return of the Lord. And here's a supplemental verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Notice with me. It says, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines taught by demons. Did you know that every single New Testament book except one, that's the book of Philemon, predicts false teachings and gives warnings against false teaching for the New Testament church in the age that we're in? And if you don't believe apostasy is real, read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven churches that talks about it and describes it. Seven letters to seven churches. And every letter except one, Jesus says, you guys are blowing it. You're sliding away. You're you're leaving the faith. So don't be surprised when you hear a Christian leader announce, you know, I don't believe that anymore. We used to think that, but we're now more educated. Well-informed people know. Don't be shocked when a Christian influencer gets on social media and starts to influence your young people or you as young people. Like some musician that you followed said, well, you know, I believe that, but now I've had a change, and I believe this is right. And then people applaud that and accept that. And you don't ever want to be bigoted. You don't ever want to think that you're better than anyone else. We are all sinners saved by grace. We all come to Jesus the same way. And at the foot of the cross, it's level for red, yellow, black, and white, rich and poor, old and young. We all come to Jesus the same way. But in the midst of doing all of that, we don't change the truth to rethink long-held Christian beliefs. I think of Ted Turner. Many of you will recognize that name. He started CNN, the Communist News Network. He invented that. And Ted Turner, for years, criticized Christianity. And that's nothing new. But what you may not know about Ted Turner is this. Ted Turner was raised in a Christian home, a very strict Christian upbringing. In fact, Ted Turner said at one time in his life, he considered being a missionary. He said, and I quote, I have been saved seven or eight times. Now, that's just Ted Turner talking because we know the Bible says you can only be saved one time. And he said, I was saved seven or eight times, but he became so disenchanted with Christianity After his sister died because he prayed and prayed and God didn't answer his prayer, he got disenchanted. And then he said this, the more I strayed from the faith, the better I felt. The more I strayed from the faith, the better I felt. But but it's going to have another source. Not only is it going to come from in the church, but this falling away is going to come from outside of the church. Go back real quick with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 where we started. In verse 2, once again, notice what Peter said. He said, be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophet and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We've heard that stuff for years. You know, we've watched people with sandwich boards. All of my life, you've seen depictions of it. The end is coming. Everyone has predicted the end of the world for years in my lifetime. Nothing has changed. Everything stays the same. Scoffers. That's the voice of a secular world, a mocker. A scoffer is a word that means someone who takes lightly what should be taken seriously. 
That's what a scoffer is. And I'm going to put uh, verse 3 in a different translation. I just want you to listen to it. I don't think I have it on the screen. But this is from the message. It says, first of all, you need to know that in the last days, mockers are going to have a heyday, reducing everything to the level of their puny feelings. They will mock. Listen again. Reducing everything to the level of their puny feelings. It's as if the Bible anticipated social media. What one person says, and they get followers and friends, and it takes off. And all this deception is going to culminate. It will culminate in Revelation chapter 13, where culture, society, is so stripped of any godly influence that there emerges what will be known as the beast. The beast that will have seven heads and ten horns consolidating governmental power on a global basis. That's where history is moving, my brothers and sisters. And we will get there sooner than we think. Where government opposes and tries to control worship. The last days. So there's prediction. There's concentration. There's deception. But as I close this morning, let me give you the most powerful word for us. And that is motivation. Chapter 3, verse 10, he's still on the subject. He says this, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with the fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. That's where the whole world is headed. Verse 10 says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved according to his promise? Look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what is he doing? What he's doing here is using the end time to motivate them, to stimulate them to godly living. And that's what it should be for us. As bad as things are, when you say it, when someone else says it, things are really bad, that's a motivation. That's an incentive for us to remind us that we are different. We are the children of God, and we can live different because of his power. Peter's very clear in his logic. If the Bible predicts the last days, and it does, if it describes a time of of spiritual apostasy and secular contempt, It should invoke within us a certain desire to serve the Lord, not a materialistic response. I mean, if it should evoke anything in us when we read this, it's not to see how much more money we can put in our retirement. It's not to see how many vacations we can go on. Because Peter made it clear, build what you want to build, but the earth and the elements thereof are going to be destroyed with the fervent heat. And it's okay to have those things. Possessions are wonderful things until they possess you. But in this light of the society we live in and the time that we're in, Peter says, keep your focus on things that are future. It should not be a materialistic response because it's going to be incinerated one day. And if you're here today, if you're hyper over materialistic things in your life, you're going to be in such sad shape. You'll, You'll be saved if you've accepted Jesus Christ, but don't put all your eggs just on this earth. It should evoke a godly response. That's what I think is happening at Asbury this week. That's what I think is happening at Cedarville this week, that they're saying, oh, God, It's me, Lord. It's not my brother. It's not my sister. But, Lord, what will you do in my heart and in my life? 
Because he says, we're looking for a better world, a new heaven, a new earth. And check out verse 11. He says, therefore, since all these things are going to be dissolved. You know that new house you just closed on? It's wonderful. Love it. It's going to burn, baby, burn. (laughs) Guys, I love cars. You know that. I love cars. Every car in my driveway is going to burn The paint's going to be peeled off of it. One day it's going to burn up. That's okay. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have chariots of fire. I am ready to go when the Lord says go. Uh, You know, I just got a deal on this. I'm wearing J.C. Panay. I mean, I have label items on my body. I'm really into clothes. And the Lord says, that's okay. Those are rags. And they're going to burn one day. They're going to go on. And then Peter asked this dumb question. What manner of people ought you to be? He says, what manner? But you know what he does? He answers it. He says, what manner of people you ought to be? And he says, you ought to be holy. That word holy means healthy in all your conversations, in all your lifestyles. You should live for the Lord. What he's saying is just this, guys. Please don't ever forget. Don't let the facade mix in with the reality. He's telling us this earth is not our home. And because it's not our home, our conduct, though we live here and God blesses us, our conduct should be otherworldly. Tim LaHaye put it this way before he went to heaven. He said, nothing motivates the Christian like the study of prophecy. It puts an evangelistic fire in the heart of the church. If you were here when Mike Pence was here, it was the Asbury Revival in 1971 where he got saved. He said it was the passion of what was happening there that brought him to Jesus. LaHaye says it puts an evangelistic fire in the heart of the church. It gives believers a vision for world missions. It injects a desire to live a holy life in an age of unholiness. And I'm out of time, and the Methodists are going to beat you to the lunch line, and I'm so sorry. I'm not finished, but I'm going to stop. I just want to say this to you. Remember this. Keep your hand at the plow. Keep your eye in the sky. Jesus is coming soon.